You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. We're going to be in Exodus. Grab your copies of God's Word. Uh, we're going to be uh, all, actually all throughout Exodus today as we continue our series, Every Book for All of Life, uh, where we take one Sunday and take a book of the Bible and, and kind of run through that whole book uh, to give us a sense of the overview, what God is doing, and begin to connect it to our lives uh, in a really particular, powerful way. So I'm going to ask you to open up to Exodus and Would you join with me as we invite God to do the work of changing us this morning? Uh, God, we are grateful that you have given us your word, that you uh, self-disclosed, that you revealed yourself to us. Not only did you create us, did you give us uh, your image, but you gave us your word. You spoke into human authors who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote down what you would have us know about yourself that we don't have to wonder about your character, we don't have to wonder about your love for us, we don't have to wonder about, about what we should do, how we should live. But that the fact that we have a book is gracious. That we have your self-revelation is gracious. So God, this morning and for the rest of the series, and God, as we open up your word, uh, would you help us love your word more deeply? Would we treasure this gift that is your word? Would we hold on to it? Would we tie it around our hearts? Would we, uh, God, live in the truth that we are loved, pursued, and redeemed in your power? In your name we pray. Amen. A few months ago, a few months ago, uh, I started doing something I didn't think I would do. Uh, I'm 40 years old, and so I, I figured it was probably, start, probably time to start watching Bob Ross what you do for fun. My other hobbies had aged out with my knees. Uh, he's got this great, I mean, he's this peaceful. You fall asleep too. I, I, I love when he starts with a blank canvas. And he, he encourages you, you can put anything you want on this. You can display whatever you want. Happy little trees. You always got some water. Happy accidents and such. There's something to that. We look at the book of Exodus and Genesis, which came before, sets the stage for God keeping his promise. He says, you know what? I, like, you screwed up in the garden. Genesis 3.15. Like, we're going we're gonna to move past that. And I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham. And, and through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I'm going to bless everybody. And we know that, like, Jesus comes from that line. That, that promise is kept. And Exodus is one of the most exciting books in the Bible, and it's the one that, that most of us know pretty well because if you went to church or if you've watched Disney movies, like you have a sense of what is in Exodus uh, for the most part. If we were to understand Exodus rightly, it's like a blank canvas on which God begins to paint what we can expect in redemption. That the stories that rightly understood of Exodus are meant to display God's power, God's sovereignty, and God's particular love for his people. God's power, his sovereignty, that is his control, his kingship, his rule, but also his particular love for his people, 
We talk about covenants. We talk about God keeping his promises. And what I want you to make sure as you just kind of, when you hear me say God's keeping his promise, I don't want you to see God as like this, this recalcitrant, this, uh, this reticent king who made a promise to a bunch of people he wishes he could, he could take back, but because of his character, he doesn't. He keeps his promise to you for his own glory. And he keeps his promise because he loves you. Exodus. Before we get started, I want to remind us of how, of how we view Scripture here at Church of the Gates and really how Scripture talks about itself and how for millennia Christians have understand, understood Scripture. Number one is we understand that every book, all 66 books of the Bible, are inspired by God. And what we mean by that is that God spoke into the hearts and minds of human authors. And then those human authors wrote the words of God that God desired them to write in their own language, in their own framework, in their own grammar. If you read the Greek of Second Peter, you know, what it looks like? It looks like a Galilean fisherman wrote a book of the Bible. It's not great Greek. First Peter was written by a scribe. That's really good Greek. God spoke to human authors using their, using their personalities, using their abilities, their grammar to communicate truth. Number two, every book is without error. So we understand uh, that from Genesis to Revelation, everything, every truth that God intends to communicate is without error. That is, as we explore the word of God, as we uh, kind of mine the depths of it, we understand that the God who inspired this also made it that it, whatever it communicates, whatever it intends to communicate, it communicates without error, which means that we need to make sure that we're not making the Bible communicate what we want it to communicate because we err all the time. Uh, number three. Every book is important for the Christian. That is, we can't just live life uh, in the Old Testament. We can't just live life in the New Testament and say, you know what? We don't need uh, all, of, all of the Old Testament. We had a, uh, there was a preacher a few years ago who said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, like, look, if you do that, you miss all of the beauty, all of the drama, and all of, of God's promises and the progressive revelation of God's character that culminates in Jesus. Jesus is all the more beautiful, all the more powerful, all the more glorifying when we understand what God has promise, and I was weaved that through history. So Exodus, briefly, who wrote Exodus? Moses. For the first five books, the answer is Moses every time. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all wrote, uh, wrote the book of Moses, and the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, it is a historical account. That is, uh, we understand it to be um, historical fact, that when all truth is known, everything that the Bible says about history, about truth, will be True, And so Exodus is an accounting of the founding of Israel, uh, the calling out from Egypt, uh, law, history, land, and leaders are what kind of begin in the book of Exodus. Why is Exodus important? Exodus paints the picture of redemption. And we're going to tease that out and see these images pretty clearly as we go through uh, the book. Exodus is a narrative history of the people in Egypt, and the few months right after. The structure of the book, which we will follow today, is this. It starts with a people redeemed, and then a people set apart. What's really interesting about the book of Exodus is the first three chapters cover 80 years. The next 37 chapters cover like a year. So basically, once you get, once you get Moses going to Pharaoh, and then them building the tabernacle, that's like the span of a year. 
Chapters 1 through 3 are Moses' life uh, early on. So we'll start with a people redeemed. Genesis 50 ends with Joseph and all of the family of Israel in Egypt. And they've been given preferential treatment because Joseph has basically saved Egypt. And so Joseph, there's a famine in the land. He, he comes up with this plan to save Egypt and all that's around. And, and Joseph gets his family to come and move and, uh, and to live in Egypt. And Joseph and Pharaoh... A real cross. There's Pharaoh, and then the second in command is Joseph. He's like the prime minister of Egypt. There's no one more prized in Egypt than Joseph. And so Joseph is in charge of, of all of Egypt, and he invites his family to come live, uh, to come live and prosper in Egypt. And I only say that to say this. God's promise was that the people of God would not die in the middle of the famine. Otherwise, his promise would have lasted like, I don't know, like 20 chapters. Doesn't make for a great book. It's pretty anticlimactic. So he gets saved in Egypt. And so Exodus 1 starts with Joseph. Uh, Joseph basically saying, or, or Moses saying, look, Joseph died off and his generation died off. And the Pharaoh that liked the, the, the Hebrews died off. And up rose and the Lord rose. Is what, is what um, Moses, the Lord rose a new king who did not remember Joseph and who did not like the Hebrews. New Pharaoh looks around and says, man, these, uh, these Hebrews, they're... Uh, being fruitful and multiplying. They're multiplying everywhere. And if we don't get a hold of this, it's going to be a problem for us because if they wanted to, the king looks around and says, my whole kingdom is at risk. One, because if they wanted to right now, they could ally with a foreign, a foreign country and wipe us out. And so he does what any other leader does in that, in that particular situation, begins to enslave the people, uh, enslave the people of uh, the Hebrews of Egypt, and then commands the midwives to kill every newborn son. That doesn't work because the midwives don't listen to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh says this in chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now this is, like this seems like something a crazy ruler would do. But we understand what's happening here. We've seen Genesis. We know that God's promise has to go through the line of Israel. What happens if the line of Israel loses all its baby boys? That promise is thwarted, right? And so the, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't know about the promise, but he says, listen, if there are no men, they can't fight, and we can just marry into the women. And so he says, listen, Egypt, we want you to kill every baby boy who is a threat to our leadership. Now, if you're, if you're at all in tune with the New Testament, you go, wait a second. Crazy king, little baby, a bunch of dead boys. Like that happened with Herod in the New Testament. That there is a pattern and a symmetry to the story that we're beginning to see in Exodus that will unfold with Jesus in the New Testament. This is a dramatic opening to the book because it doesn't open with good news, it opens with really bad news. The Hebrews have multiplied, but Pharaoh has, has clamped them down and said every Hebrew baby is to die. And that's where the, that's where the first chapter starts. That's the first like opening, opening salvo of the book of Exodus. Like that's, that's the story. That's how we understand. It was such a great triumph in Genesis and, and, and Joseph and, and all the people are growing. And in Exodus we see pff, it comes crashing to the ground. The promises of God at the end of Exodus 1 are in real trouble. Exodus 2 uh, begins uh, where uh, we're telling the story of a Levite man and a Levite woman who have a baby. And this baby is, uh, Scripture says, this is a fine baby. I guess, I'd like to see the other babies, I guess. 
It's a fine baby. And, and we're going to keep this baby for three months and try to hide it so it doesn't get killed. And so the mom, in an effort to, to, to sustain the baby, holds it for three months, realizes I can't hide the baby anymore. So what does she do? She creates a, 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 a wicker basket of bulrush and then puts some pitch on it. You know what she creates? An ark. She creates a small little ark that is going to carry this little baby. Where have we seen the ark before? This is not a trick question. Genesis. And what did that ark do? That ark preserved those inside against God's wrath. And so here is this mother putting Moses in there, and she says to her sister, uh, to her daughter, hey, follow this and see what happens to your baby. Uh, we know the story. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter then shows up and says, hey, there's this baby in the weeds, and picks it up, and the sister goes, hey, should I find the mother for you to nurse? And the, 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 the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. You know what's interesting here? Didn't Pharaoh say kill all the baby boys? Pharaoh's daughter comes up to Pharaoh. I can just imagine, because I got daughters, right? Look, Dad, I found a kitten. <laughs> you can almost imagine the conversation because that baby should be dead. Why is Pharaoh allowing this baby boy to live? Only God could create that moment. So Moses grows up. Turns out he's got a temper. End of uh, the, the first thing we know about Moses, you know what the first thing is? He's got a temper and he likes to kill people. That's number one. And so he, he grows up and the first story we hear about Moses is him looking out at his people's plight and he goes and he sees some Egyptians treating some Hebrews bad. He looks around, makes sure no one's looking and then he kills the guy, right? And comes back the next day thinking they're gonna throw him a parade. Two Hebrew guys go say, listen, like we saw, we know what you did. You're gonna bring it worse on us and they're gonna come get you. So Moses then does the, mo the second most courageous act. He runs. By the way, this is the hero, the human hero of the story is Moses. Starts off as a murderer who runs. This is all we know about Moses right now. Exodus 2, 23 through 25 help us see what God sees. During, these, during those many days of the king of Egypt, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew when you see this phrase, and God remembered, that should put a little, like lightning should go off in your head. And, this is really important because God is about to intervene. It's not he remembered because he forgot. It's now it's time. I'm going to show up. When we see God saying, I'm going to remember something miraculous, something big, something only that God could do is about to happen. And so Exodus 3 shows up, and there's Moses kind of walking around with his sheep, and he looks to the right, and you know, what, you know what's over there to the right? A burning bush. And, like, I love, like, I grew up in a Christian church and uh, with flanograph, and, you know, you put, like, the bush on there with the fire on it, and it's, like, this really tame thing. And, like, I, like, I can't imagine being Moses, seeing a random fire, that's located in only one place in which it doesn't consume something. And the scripture says he looked on the side of it because he was like, this is not normal. And then what happens is God goes, hey, take off your sandals. Like that would be, I'd run. Like you wouldn't, wouldn't have my sandals. And he says, listen, 
I am the God of the promise. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When you see God saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know what he's saying is, I am the God who made that promise, who will keep that promise. That's who he's, Moses looking at this, this thing that doesn't consume and, and outspeaks uh, the words of God. I am the God of that promise. I am the God who keeps his covenant. I am the God who is faithful. Now go tell your people that I've heard their cry and that will liberate them from uh, from Egypt. And Moses asks an interesting question. Asks an interesting question. He says, so uh, what's your name? This is a strange question. God says, verses, verse, 13, verse 14 of Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me to you. If you want to understand the foundational nature of who God is, it's in the words, I am. Which means he always has been, he always will be, he always was. He is in Egypt as he is in Midian. He is the greatest, he is the strongest, he is the wisest. So God says, listen, tell your people, tell my people the I am is coming. Tell my people the I am is coming to stop Pharaoh. Tell my people the I am is coming to save them. Tell them, tell, tell, their, tell your people their days in slavery are limited because I am. This is not some mis mistake. There's not some word missing. This is the very character of who he is, that there is nothing greater, no one more faithful, no one larger, no one stronger. I am. You tell your people the I am is coming to save them. That's the message of Moses for the people. Tell them you saw me in a burning bush. Tell them the I am is coming. Exodus 4, Exodus 4 right after this interaction says, hey, but I don't speak really goodly. Uh, and so, like, I, I stutter a lot, and I'm not great in front of people, and if you give me a microphone, who knows what's going to come out, and, and, and God says, listen, I got this coming, I, got, I already got this, I knew you were going to say that, your brother Aaron, who is a really great speaker, is on his way, he's going to help you, and so Moses and Aaron go in Exodus 5, meet with Pharaoh, and say, listen, our God has called us, will you let our people go just for three days? Would you let us go worship in the wilderness for three days? Pharaoh says, no, I'm not doing that, and you know what? Because the people are listening to you, it shows me they're too lazy. So you know what you, know what you need to do is we need to keep you busy. We need to keep our people busy so they don't hear this message. We need to keep our busy, people busy so they don't listen to you. So he tells, he tells his foreman, listen, we've been providing straw for, uh, for bricks. Let's take away the straw, but keep our quotas the same. Let's make sure these Israelites are so busy. They can't worship. Let's make sure our Israelites are so busy. They can't hear the word of God. Let's make sure our Israelites are so busy that they don't hear this message of freedom. So Moses, at the end of chapter 5, like looks up at God and says, listen, well, you've made this worse. Like I came and gave you this message and the people of God, your people, that you wanted to redeem. Like it's worse. It's worse. This is a note. Just put this in the side of your head, behind your, wherever you want to put it, actually, I don't care. It's an interesting note. Pharaoh does not like the people of God. Okay, so far he's proven he hates God, he hates the people of God, he's opposed to who they are, opposed. Like Pharaoh already is not neutral towards the people of God. And I just say that because there's gonna be this, this, this verse we read later that is somewhat confounding and somewhat confusing, but we need to understand that Pharaoh at the very outset of who he was is not sympathetic to the people of Israel. 
He wants them to keep his legacy. He wants them for, for labor. It's easy to run a kingdom and be profitable if you don't have to pay the people running the kingdom. Exodus 6, verse 1. This is God's answer to Moses. Now you shall see what I do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Verse 6 says this. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. This is a key theological term that starts in Exodus. It's a key theological theme that goes through all of Scripture. And this theological theme is redemption. It's the act, it's the act of delivering a people from bondage. And what, what, Pharaoh, or what, what God is saying is, not only am I going to destroy Pharaoh, but I'm going to make it so you're not enslaved to them anymore. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to do what is necessary to move you from bondage to freedom. That's what redemption means. It means to pay the price, to purchase somebody so that they are your people, or to purchase this from slavery into bondage into freedom. Exodus 7, verses 12, we see the conflict is building. You've got, uh, you've got Pharaoh, and you've got Moses and Aaron, and verse 3 of chapter 7 says this. This is Moses talking, or God talking to Moses about what is coming, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This is a troubling concept, and it should be because we don't have all the answers and all the implications for what this means. But here's what we do know. We know that Pharaoh was opposed to the people of Israel. He didn't like them. He didn't like God. And yet there is this moment here in, in, in verse 3, where, where God says to Moses, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That there's something going on there, but I'm going to impress on his heart so that my judgment, what I have planned, will go exactly as I desire. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened before God hardened it. So there's a piece like, like God hardened what was already hard, but you can't get away from the language here. You can't really excuse the fact that there's God using somebody, Pharaoh, to display his glory by hardening his heart. God is displaying his power over Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh is still described as culpable. Multiple times in the ten plagues, what we're going to see is we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. That there is this interplay between God and Pharaoh, making sure that what God desires to come to pass will come to pass. And so then we see this in the 10 plagues. We've got the Nile to blood. We've got the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock dead, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and the firstborn. What is so interesting about this is, is so much of this is aimed at physical destruction, right? We've got, we've got it, it lays waste to all of Egypt. And what we know is all who were in Egypt with save the last plague experienced this. This was a cataclysmic, physical destruction of all of Egypt's infrastructure. But you know what we know about Egyptology and, and their gods? We know that the way the Ten Commandments was, was rolled out was a cataclysmic, spiritual destruction of the people of Israel. That every plague, every plague either has a group of gods or one god that it was aimed at. That with the God, with the Nile to blood, with the frogs, the gnats, the flies, locusts, or even darkness, 
the sun god of Egypt was Ra. He was thought to be one of the most powerful. He was thought to be one of the most powerful gods. And God's plague was darkness to shut off that God. That each 10 commandments, each one of these uh, plagues was meant to strike at the spiritual heart of the people of Egypt to know that the I am is here. Not Ra, not Osiris, not any of these other gods, but the I am of Israel, the God of Israel, Yahweh is here. And with every plague, you will see your gods demolished. This was a cataclysmic physical and spiritual demolition in which God declares, I am over Egypt. Exodus 11, four through five. This is the plague where Pharaoh, where of the firstborn dying, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn born in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, all the firstborn of the cattle. That is anyone who, anyone or any living, living livestock in the midst of Egypt, notice what we understand is all these plagues had effect on the Israelites as well. And yet this one, this one seems to have that as well. If the Hebrews wish to be spared, uh, uh, Moses institutes with, God's, with God's, uh, God's teaching the Passover where they slaughter a lamb and they take the blood and they've got to eat it and, and eat the lamb and do some certain things. But if you want to be spared this, this, this wrath, you take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts of your home. And if you do that, you'll be spared. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to miss what's happening here. Like, if you're an Israelite and you haven't been spared any of these other plagues, and, and, and we know that, like, the firstborn is coming, that's what Moses has said, it would take a lot of faith to think that the blood of a lamb might stop that from happening. And so they have to do this. If there's any hope of, what, if you're an Israelite, what you're saying, if there's any hope of preserving our line, if there's any hope of preserving our firstborn, we have to trust God enough with this because it's the first time he's spoken into this and relieved us from a plague. And so he says, listen, the blood from the lamb will save your son's death. And so uh, your son's from death. So if you put that blood over the lamb, the, the, uh, the angel of the Lord, which will kill any firstborn in Egypt, will pass over your house. This is the 10th and final plague. Pharaoh's son dies. We know from Egypt, Egyptology that Pharaoh's son would have been considered a demigod. The only demigod so far left in this story who has not yet been destroyed is Pharaoh. Every other demigod, every other little g-god is, is gone with these plagues and with the I am showing up. Exodus 13 Exodus 13 uh, begins, well, Pharaoh, uh, Exodus 12 says, Pharaoh, I've had enough. My son is dead. You guys get out of here. And the Egyptians plunder themselves. That is, they give silver and gold to the Israelites just as uh, God had said happens. And God leads them in a pillar of clouds by day. And uh, by night, he leads them by fire. Exodus 14, which is like a day or two or three or four after they leave. This is pretty quick. What's happened is uh, Pharaoh looks around and God hardens his heart and says, wait a second, my economy's in shambles and no one can do anything about it. And I regret sending the Israelites. And so Pharaoh saddles up his horses, saddles up his chariots, and begins to run hard after the Israelites who are wandering kind of circuitously in the desert, uh, what would be eastward. And they end up at this place with their backs against the wall. There's a bunch of wilderness in front of them with Pharaoh's coming this way and, a, and the Red Sea behind them. They're basically trapped. This is like the, the this really is the climax of, of the book of Exodus where you've got the people of Israel, a million, a million point five, maybe two 
million people there. None of them have arms. None of them are trained. All of them are, are, have just been slaves three or four days ago or a week ago, and they are trapped in the middle of the desert, about to be mowed down by Egyptian chariots. And Egyptian chariots were like the M1 Abrams tanks of warfare back then. They were the strongest thing on the battlefield. And so Exodus 14 comes, and Israel, Israel, despite seeing all that God has done in verse, in verse uh, 12 and 13, is basically, listen, Moses, like this is a great idea, but we should go back to Egypt because we're about to die out here, and it would have been better to stay in Egypt. And you know what God says to them in verse 14? At the climax of this, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to. That's a whole sermon itself. And so Moses turns around in the direction of the Lord, raises his hand, the Red Sea parts. The people of God walk through on dry land. And just as they get through uh, on dry land, then Pharaoh's army comes in with these chariots. And the last, uh, the last demigod that's still alive, who could still take glory from the I Am, ends up in the water. And the, wa and the waters crash over them. And the Egyptian army and Pharaoh are gone. The I Am has come. The one who can redeem, the one who can split the waters, the one who can have the plagues, the one who can take care of his people in the wilderness. Chapters 15 through 19, which kind of round out uh, God's, uh, God's particular uh, redemption for his people, is, is actually, it's actually a lot of complaining, like Exodus 15, a really funny moment where uh, they're sitting around and they realize they don't have any food, and, and they say, man, I really wish we were back in Egypt with the meat pots of Pharaoh. Like, I really wish, this is like, I wish we were having stew in slavery. That's how much better life would have been if we had just been back there. Then God brings manna and quail. They organize people so Moses can manage them. And uh, there's, there's water and sweet water and bitter and all of this. And uh, the, story, the story begins to change for the people of Israel because the main, the main exodus has happened. And so now you've got a million people, 1.5 million people, kind of out there living life new because all of them have only lived under Egyptian law and Egyptian uh, precepts and all of that. And now you've got 1.5, 1 million people living, having no like moral compass, no direction, but they know they've been redeemed. And some of them like it. Some of them don't like it. They want meat pots. They want all these things. What needs to happen next is they need to be taught how then to live. And so this people redeemed redeemed from Pharaoh, becomes a people who are set apart in the last half of the book of Exodus. And the people set apart is the part that we don't like because it's all about law. We like being redeemed. We don't like what might have to come with that, what does by virtue come with that. And so he's got these people, he's redeemed from Egypt, he saved these people, and now pretty much for the rest of the book, the next 20 chapters, deal with what it looks like to image or work out the character of God who just redeemed you. Verses, verses uh, or chapters 20 through 34 are eight trips up to Mount Sinai. They end up at Mount Sinai where God speaks to Moses and the Ten Commandments and he comes down and breaks them and goes back up and then, and then Aaron goes up and then Aaron's sons go up and it's this up and down where Moses is speaking to the people and, and this grumbling that happened in chapter 15 ends up uh, with idolatry where Moses is up there hearing from God and Aaron, who's in charge of the, of the, religious, like, the, the, the religious life of the people, goes ahead and says, you know, Moses has been up there for a while. Maybe he's forgotten so let's build this calf and let's worship and have this, this massive orgiastic uh, worship service. And so Moses comes down and sees his people and says, I was only gone for like a week. And here you are 
worshiping that which has been made by hand. You don't remember what happened three months ago. You don't remember the plagues. You don't remember the crossing the Red Sea. How stiff-necked are you? Exodus 19, 4 through 6 helps us understand what God is aiming at for the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. That is, that God is saying, out of all of the earth, you will be the thing I treasure the most. You will be the the most important thing to me, for all the earth is mine, and you shall too be a kingdom of priests, holy, a holy nation. And so the Ten Commandments come right after that. And he says, listen, if you want to know what it looks like to live and image my character, to be like me, here are 10 things you need to do. Here are 10 frameworks of moral living uh, that will help you understand how best to work out your lives. And then 21 and 22 and 23 are filled with other laws. Uh, like, and there are some capital offenses. Like what we learn about God as he's releasing the law is that there are some things, uh, like all sin being equal and that it separates us from God, but there are some things that are sourced in idolatry, some things that God hates more than others. Like we see he hates sorcery and hates, uh, hates idolatry and hates, um, and hates a few other things and, and like not keeping the Sabbath. Like there are capital offenses that God says, listen, if you want to live and if you want to thrive, if you want to be distinct, if you want to be my people that I've redeemed you and you want to look like me to the nations, here's what that looks like. God's people were meant to reflect God's character. God's people were meant to to reflect God's character. Exodus 23, 2, in the New Living Translation says this, you must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. That he says to his people, like, here's how to live. And they're gonna be people, they're gonna be organizations, they're gonna be gods, they're gonna be other peoples who want you to live differently. But don't follow the crowd in doing evil. Follow my word. Look like me. Their lives were to be a canvas on which God's character is displayed. Their obedience was meant to underscore their faith in God. That you could trust, really what God is saying is, listen, if I brought you out of Egypt with my strong hand, if I humbled and humiliated Pharaoh, if I destroyed uh, Egypt and all of that, and I, and I saved you, uh, when you when we crossed uh, the Red Sea and I gave you manna and quail and water, if I took care of you, you can trust me that when I say this is good, if you live that out, it'll be good for you. That you can trust my word because I've proven Myself. Exodus is largely about redemption, about God's ability to keep his promises to his people. And in Exodus, we see the grand movements of God's design and God's desire to love and to save a particular people. So what are we going to take away from this book? Three things, briefly. Number one, God is at work for his glory and your good. One of the number one things that pops off the page of Exodus is that Moses is not the main character. God is. That God is moving, and we see that the reason he hardens Pharaoh's heart, the reason he does it the way he does it with Egypt, the reason he does the ten plagues, the reason that everything is timed just so is so that he gets the glory. He is the great I am. And some of us say, man, man what, a, what a petty thing that God would want all the worship. Let me ask you a question. Who is worthy of more worship than the I am? Like nobody. 
Like everything he does is good. Every promise he keeps is good. And so why shouldn't we want to see more of his glory? Because that means he's keeping his character. He's keeping his love and faithfulness and justice that the more he is who he is, the better it is for all of us. God is at work for his glory in your good. Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, said this of Exodus and God. The one thing we take away is this. Circumstances don't determine God's will. God's will determines the circumstances. That God is not up there responsive. He is not up there passive. But that he is actively moving history towards the end that he has designed. We often don't think this, but this is true, that our good, this is worth writing down, good remembering in the hard times, our good and God's glory are bound up together. Our, like, like his glory is not divorced from our good. That when he glorifies himself, he is acting in his character and that can only be good for us. Now that doesn't mean it's not gonna bring us pain and discomfort. If you ask the Israelites, they wanted the meat pots with Pharaoh. They would have preferred to be enslaved with stew than to be starving with God. And yet what God is saying, listen, it's better to be hungry in the desert than have full bellies with Pharaoh. That our glory, or our good and God's glory are bound up together. When he brings pain and discomfort, he does it like a surgeon and not like a dungeon master. A dungeon master inflicts the most amount of pain to get the most amount of joy for himself, ultimately for destruction. God brings pain and discomfort like a surgeon, only taking that which what he needs to accomplish what he needs for you. God's glory is that he keeps his promises, which means it'll always work out for our good. And we might be tempted like the Israelites to grumble for Pharaoh's meat pots and say, you know what? Like, it was easier at my previous job. I'd rather be back at that job. They made more money. God, it would be easier uh, if, if I was silent about you. It wouldn't cost me friends. It wouldn't cost me things in the workplace. God, my life would be more comfortable if I hadn't moved here. God, my life would be more comfortable when I had those friends. Like, there is a danger in the type of discontentment that says, God, you got it wrong. There's a real danger there. We look at our circumstances and we assume that the pain and discomfort in our lives is because God got something wrong for us. Or there's a real danger and discontentment that says, man, I'm entitled to some measure of comfort that I don't have. The grumbling started days after the Exodus and culminated with the worship of a golden calf, which you know what the result of that was? 3,000 people died at the sword and a plague took more. Our lives are meant to be a canvas of God's character. Number two, our lives underscore our beliefs. Our lives underscore our beliefs. That is what we believe about God actually just gets worked out in, in our lives. Uh, we had a couple weeks ago into the Buddhist mind where there was a missionary who came and shared with us about Buddhism and I mean, it was powerful. The last thing he said was, uh, we need more Bible translators. And what he meant, to, what he meant as he was teasing this out is, is that all of us, all of us translate what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about God into our lives. We need more people who read the Bible, more people who want to image his character, more people who desire uh, that, that God be known in their lives. We need more people who are asking ourselves the question, do my, do my coworkers see the character of God in my actions? Do my classmates see the character of God in my actions? Do the other moms on playdates see the character of God in my actions? Do my neighbors know who I vote for, but not who I worship? Our lives are meant to be a canvas on which the character of God is displayed. And here's what we have to understand. 
Big obedience flows from deep faith. You cannot obey your way into deep faith. It doesn't work that way. That the only reason Moses did what he did or Abraham did what he did is that they trusted God enough to be put in a position where all they, all they had was him. So they were uncomfortable and in and pain sometimes, but God honored that faith, which is why we have that wall, the 5,000 meals. Like we think the greatest thing that you could do for, for Missoula and for your neighbors is to be someone who invites someone into their lives, to have a meal with them, friendships and love that isn't defined or limited by the, by the political like foray or love and friendship that shared lives in an age of outrage or isolation. It's like, we are dedicated to this. We've got almost 1,000 meals that you all have had over the course because we think, we think sharing your life and imaging the character of God is good for you and good for those around you. Third thing, third and final takeaway, God alone has the power to save. God alone has the power to save. Exodus 3, 14, I am who I am. Let me ask a question that is not rhetorical. I'd like you to answer. Who is stronger than the I am? You didn't sound convinced. I'm going to give you another chance at that. <laughs> Who is stronger than the I am? Amen. Who is greater than the I am? Who is wiser than the I am? He is the only one that can save. And all of us enter this life in need of saving. All of us enter this life stained and broken by sin. All of us enter this life with the inability to, to, to leverage our good works into salvation. Sure, we can do good works, but none of them move the needle towards salvation. Without God, we are without hope. You know what's so interesting? The blood on that frame uh, in, the, in the last plague, right? What would they call that? The Passover, Right? Exodus is written about 1,400, 1,500 years before Christ. 1,500, after, 1500 years after this is written, you know what happens? Some dude named Jesus is born, grows up, starts to do his ministry, and John, uh, John the Baptist says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the what? Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then it was Jesus in John 14, 6, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so look, you either have to really be committed to randomness to, to, to think what happens next is random, because Jesus walks into Jerusalem during the Passover festival, being the Lamb of God, and makes people angry, and is arrested on Thursday, and on Friday, the day of Passover is hung, and his blood is drained from his body. He dies, and on, on, the, on the third day, rises from the dead. You either have to believe this is some random coincidence or you believe what God, what God inspired Moses to write was a symbol of what was to come for all who would believe. That it is not some story that is lost in the history, but it points us to Jesus who said, I am, I am, I am, I am. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And Exodus reminds us the God who is the I am can conquer any sin, can free us from any bondage, can forgive anything. And to the uttermost is what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 10.10, and we'll end this quickly. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body, Jesus Christ, once and for all. All of our sins, all of our doubts, all of our brokenness paid for. In Hebrews 7, the author says, to the uttermost, that there's no part of your brokenness, no part of who you are, no part of your doubt, nothing that's ever happened to you. There's no part of you that can't and won't be redeemed if you bring it to Jesus today. Nothing is wasted. 
Nothing is wasted. And Exodus reminds us that the one who makes that promise is the great I am. So if you don't know who Jesus is this morning, I can't like, I can't implore to you this morning how I think the best thing you could do today would be to give your life to repent of your sins and to come meet the great I am who wants to forgive you, who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave so he might be your ark, that you might find freedom and new life and, and, and you might be spared God's wrath for eternity. And look, you're here, man, I know Jesus, this is good news. Like, we get to repent today as Christians and say, man, the same Jesus that died for me and, and changed my life now changes my life every day. Only he can save. Only he can heal. And in just a few minutes, we're gonna have five people testify to that goodness. This is not something I've just made up. God has moved in the hearts of people, created new life, and we're about to hear that testimony. Only the great I am could do that. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so good. We ran from you. Scripture says we were alienated and hostile in mind that we, out of the womb, were staying with sin. But it was while we were yet sinners, while we ran from you, while we doubted you, while we were angry at you, God, you sent Christ to die for our sins, ensuring that no brokenness in our life couldn't be forgiven, no rebellion couldn't be rooted out, that there's no part of our life that your salvation, your power, your redemption can't be seen. What good news that is for us this morning. That all who come and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave might have new life and that their life could reflect your character and that they'd be sealed for eternity. Oh God, would you add to our number today? Would you give us great joy as we witness the life change you've done in people, in teenagers, in men and women who love you and have followed you? In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church, or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.